Well, we can get started. Uh, and to start, let me first invite all of you to. Is that sharing? Make sure. Share screen. Do. Yes. Okay. To I'd like to invite you to the um, great chicken wing debate this Friday. Uh, that wasn't my name uh, for it, but it's the next in the Bulls Lodge series, where we're trying to just, uh, you know, try and talk to each other, see each other while we're all isolated in our little uh, little uh, Zoom windows here. So it'll be me, uh, Patrick Long, and of course, CPB. Um, and it'll, it should be fun. Uh, I'm gonna bring. Uh, I'm gonna go out and get some of my uh, favorite Gabriel's Gate wings, and uh, I invite you all to get your own wings for lunch too. So anyway, uh, that should be that should be fun. All right. Um, we do have material to go over today, actually. So th uh, this week we're dealing with. Um, confidentiality the uh, the rules on confidentiality and I talked about this in my lecture on Friday just to go over it very quickly this is a very broad rule it's one of the few rules that has sort of a black letter bright line rule to it lawyers shall not reveal information relating to the representation of a client what information is that? Pretty much everything. Pretty much everything that this exchange, uh, or that, or that the lawyer. It's even broader than that. It doesn't. It, it's 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 not just material information that the client tells the lawyer, or that the lawyer tells the client, or that witnesses tell the lawyer, or anything that relates to the representation, wherever it comes from. Can come from the lawyer's uh, research, comes comes from documents or whatever. Lawyer may not disclose any of that unless the the client first first the client gives informed consent, or the disclosure is impliedly authorized. Talked a little bit about that, and then uh, there are a group of exceptions in paragraph B, and that's what we'll talk about on Wednesday. So this is a very broad protection for clients. And it uh, this it imposes a very strict rule on lawyers. There are variations, not every state or every jurisdiction treats this rule as strictly as this, but this is what the model rules say. Uh, comment Four says that this includes any um, any uh, disclosures that, while not themselves consisting of confidential information, could lead to the discovery of confidential information. Right? Um, there are instances where a lawyer might have good reason to discuss uh, confidential information with another person. And in those cases, it's, it's uh, usually advised to use a hypothetical format. Uh, you can use hypothetical, don't use the names or anything like that. 
as long as there is no reasonable likelihood that the listener will be able to ascertain the identity of the client or the situation involved. Okay. So this is the uh, model rule. Now, I believe on our in the lecture I went over a little bit about the uh, how the restatement rule differs, right? And re the restatement is probably a little closer to most states, how most states handle this. Um, so it puts some sort of guardrails on what, what a lawyer may and may not do with confidential information. Lawyer may not use or disclose information, confidential information, if there is a reasonable, um, here we go, if there is a reasonable prospect that doing so will adversely affect a material interest of the client. So the test here is, is uh, lawyer may not use or disclose information that could affect a material interest of the client. So it usually a, a bad effect, adversely affect. Um, so if there's a reasonable chance, reasonable likelihood, reasonable prospect that the disclosure of that information could harm an interest of that client in some way, lawyer may not use it or disclose it. And then secondly, if the client has instructed the lawyer not to use or disclose such information. So unlike the model rule, the uh, restatement suggests that the that lawyer is also bound by the instructions of the client. Uh, that's probably the case too under the model rule, although it's not uh, explicitly in the rule. I think that's the way the model rule would be interpreted. So uh, basically, the difference is that the model the uh, model or sorry, the restatement limits the disclosure uh, or the prohibition on disclosure to anything that could harm the client. If it's harmless, uh, harmless information, then it's, it's likely to be okay. The, now, New York has an, even a different rule, and this has been the New York rule for a long time. Uh, as, as a side note, New York uses the same numbering as the model rule. So in its, um, in theory, New York has adopted the model rules, but in some instances like this, New York really just carries on their older rule, just puts it into the numbering system that the model rules use. So uh, lawyers shall not knowingly reveal confidential information or use such information to the disadvantage of the client or for the advantage of the lawyer or a third person. So it's, again, it's a, a, an even a narrower, narrower definition of confidentiality uh, and, and what the duty is. Think of it, think of confidentiality really as not a type of information, at least under the model rules. Under the model rules, let me go back to this a bit. Okay, the model rules don't define something called confidential information. The model rules treat it as a discussion of a duty that the lawyer has to the client with respect to certain kinds of information, certain information relating to the representation. 
So it doesn't say some information is confidential, others, other types of information are not. The model rules just simply broadly says don't don't disclose information relating to the representation. The uh, restatement does define confidential information, and as defined in the restatement, it's again information relating to the representation that is not generally known. Okay, so it adds that qualification. And then uh, describes what you can do with such information when disclosure is permitted. And the New York rule says uh, the lawyer shall not reveal such information or use it to hurt the client, to the disadvantage of the client, or for the advantage of the lawyer, or for the advantage of a third person. So it might be that uh, you learn something in the representation of one client that might be useful to another client of yours. You can't share that. You cannot tell that information to the client. You may not use it on behalf of that client unless one of the exceptions applies. And again, exceptions are informed consent. Uh, implied authorization, again, is narrowed down further. Uh, implied authorization uh, works only if it is to advance the best interest of the client and it has to be reasonable under the circumstances or at least customary in the professional community, right? So uh, presumably that would mean uh, in the, in the um, Western New York uh, legal community, there might be a certain understanding that certain kinds of disclosures would be, would be reasonable or are customary. And then the third is that the disclosure is permitted by paragraph B, which again is the set of uh, uh, exceptions that we'll talk about. Professor, um, yeah. Liz, I just wanted to let you know that Jasmine is having a really hard time logging into the class today. Um, so I just want to let oh, you know that she's working on I it. I think now. she was having trouble the other day. Thank you mm -hmm. for letting me know. No problem. Yeah, I know. Um, do you know if she was able to get the video afterwards? I don't know, but I could ask. Okay. All right. Um, okay. The New York rule does in describe or define confidential information. So it, it's like the restatement, it's different from the model rule. So confidential information, again, information gained during or relating to the representation of a client. So that part is similar to the model rule, but it adds certain qualifications here again. It's either privileged information which we'll talk about next week, attorney-client privilege, or if it's going to be embarrassing or detrimental to the client if disclosed, or information that the client has requested be kept confidential. So the this, this second one, section B, embarrassing or detrimental to the client, is probably another way of stating that um, how the restatement uh, limits it to information that would adversely affect a material interest of the client. So it's not that different. New York is not, not that different from the uh, restatement rule. Just a different way of phrasing it. Different states are going to have different ways of phrasing it based on their common law development of the rule. Uh, Franco?
I have a question for the exam, sure. either the midterm or, or the final. Do we also have to learn uh, the restatement and this, for example, the New York rule, or is it just going to be the model rule? Um, for the for the exam, it'll be the model rule. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm letting you know the New York rule just because you guys are going to be New York lawyers, most of you. And you might need to know that for the... Uh, the bar exam, right? okay. the New York part of the bar. Thanks. Uh, and also just to sort of give you general awareness that there are going to be different, some slight differences in the rule on confidentiality. So if you could be, I mean, some of you will probably be admitted to a couple of different bars, right? Maybe New York and North Carolina or whatever. Um, you need to be aware of those differences. Okay, but I'm not gonna spend time on it. I'm not gonna quiz you on it and I'm not gonna, uh, give you and give you that in the exam my exams will all will be my exams will always be um some made-up fictional jurisdiction which happens to be i you know, use rules identical to the model rules okay i think i put that in the quiz first quiz too okay any other questions about that okay then let's break up for a few minutes and just talk about this first problem problem oh it was problem 3.1 in a previous edition it's now 4.1 i believe in this book uh your dinner with anna which uh i'm going to give you about uh it's a lengthy problem to read i'll give you five minutes on this one again this is on page 253. You want us to do all of the sub questions um, for this? No, okay. no. I'm having trouble finding it. It's not 244. It? 244. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. No, um, there will be. For, for our purposes, I will ask you uh, the questions that you see here. Which of these disclosures violate the model rule? Um, did any of them violate the restatement? And I might ask, just in this in this class, uh, compare it to the New York rule. Okay, so I'm going to give you. Now you only have probably the model rule in front of you, right? Because you probably have a rule uh, supplement, but I can flash the New York rule up on the screen. Let's 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 focus on the model rule. I think that's probably enough. So I'm going to give you five minutes to read the problem and uh, discuss which, if any, of these things were violations. Turning on the recording again. So that could be a problem. Could be that uh, the other party might know some you might be sitting, you know, halfway across the room from a prosecutor or something like that. Um, any other reasons? Uh, uh, Austin, what do you think? You know, just kind of violate the trust of the client because, you know, a client, it's really important that clients be able to, uh, you know, really express what happened to their lawyers and kind of go into detail about it. But then, like, if a lawyer's, you know, going to go around and telling people that, then they're not going to want to share that information. 
Yeah, that's very good. And that's why I think the rule is as broad as it is that includes any information relating to the representation, because we want our clients to speak candidly with their lawyers and not and it should the client shouldn't have to be thinking about is this information that I'm talking to the client the lawyer about re relating to my representation um, you might just have I don't know certainly in, in getting to know a client there might be more casual conversation as part of it too um, you don't want the client to have to analyze or weigh the information they're they're sharing to decide whether the lawyer is going to protect protect it or not and that, so that's why also it includes th uh, things that disclosures that might not be harmful. And in the model rule, it's not limited to uh, disclosures that could damage the client, uh, cause some kind of adverse material effect on the client. The idea is is trust. If you're talking with the client, if a client is talking with you about, you know important things because client you know clients come to you with you know usually at the worst time in their life you know there's either some big financial matter or uh their freedom or livelihood might be on on uh or life might be on the line if they're if it's a if you're doing criminal defense but it's important stuff and if if the client learns that say you're you're gossiping with someone else even if you think they there's no connection it just sort of again, diminishes that trust, and I think can create a habit, if a lawyer does that, of maybe treating confidential information fairly carelessly. So most lawyers, I think, um, they'd be out, they would not do this. They would be outraged by this sort of conversation going on here, and um, would be tend to be very careful not to share any uh, information regarding the client. There's a lot of information here. You know, you you learn that the lawyer was working on a police brutality case, suing the police for excessive force. Remember, you know, all of you were in high school then, but maybe about seven years ago, um, there was a uh, customer at this bar down the street from the South Campus. It was called Max at the time. And then it was a soul food restaurant for a while. It's like across from the laundromat, if you ever go down to South Campus. Um, it's it's a very nondescript bar. But uh, someone was, was thrown out down the stairs in such a way that I think he broke his neck and died. And the person who threw him out was a police, an off-duty police officer working as security, as a bouncer at this bar, you know. So this is, again, it's a small town. Uh, you wouldn't have to share much information if you were representing that police officer or the the bar owner or whatever. Um, that was in the news. That was in all, all all over the news. You wouldn't have to share much information with another person for them to figure out what case you're working on, right? So I always use that as an example. I think I'm gonna have to quit using it. Nobody, nobody here remembers that story, huh? Uh, ask your. Oh, no, I actually do. I do remember that story. Russell. My professor yeah. in insurance law actually there was an insurance aspect to it, and he brought it up in yeah. the. I took insurance law this past semester with uh, Professor Cohen, mm -hmm. and he he brought that mm -hmm. case up, and I actually remember it because um, my dad works in the, in the news around here, so I, I just remember that story. Okay, yeah, as being uh, it was it was yeah. it was big news for a while. Yeah. 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 Definitely. 
I don't know how it ever resolved. But anyway, we can talk about that later. Well, I think the guy got, like, quite a bit in jail, I think. somebody. Good, good. Um, all right. Uh, another example of this sort of situation that shows that sometimes lawyers really do make mistakes this big. So this was well, this was in 2017, which you guys were were alive then. So you may remember this story or this picture. These are two lawyers from Washington D.C. The fellow on the right in the shadow is uh, his name is Ty Cobb, and the other one is John M. Dowd, and they were both on uh, President Trump's defense team. Uh, working uh, in response to the, the Robert Mueller investigation and, uh, you know, the, the Russian hacking and so on. And they're sitting here having lunch at a restaurant called the B BLT Steakhouse. And here on the picture, I don't know if you can see the picture very well, here's the White House. Just a couple of blocks up here. This is the BLT Steakhouse where they're sitting out on the sidewalk. So any passers-by could hear him. And 450 feet away is the New York Times offices in Washington, D.C. So this photograph was taken by a New York Times reporter who happened to be sitting there having lunch with somebody. And said, those, those guys look familiar. And then and could not help but overhear what they were talking about, which happened to be they were talking about... Um, strategies for for their uh, litigate for their uh, response uh, to this investigation talking about tensions among the legal team so this was do you do any of you remember that you weren't in law school huh? um there was a, a lot of discussion you know among lawyers like are they were they really that dumb or careless or was this some sort of uh, a strategic leak and I don't think we ever we ever knew. It sounded it looks like they were just careless. But 450 feet from the New York Times office, I thought that was incredible. Anyway, so again, this is what reporters dream of: just sitting down and having a scoop like that drop in your lap. But this brings us up to the section C of our Rule 1.6, which is. Not only may a lawyer not disclose or use information, they also have to make reasonable efforts to protect confidential client information. Reasonable, temp reasonable efforts to prevent the inadvertent or unauthorized disclosure or access to information relating to the representation. Um, this happened, this was a, a big problem for a lot of lawyers when fax machines first started appearing in law offices uh, and if you ever saw a fax machine in operation you probably saw misdirected faxes coming in uh, someone dialed the wrong phone number and, and and so that's why lawyers would put these disclaimers at the bottom of them and you see that on emails too uh, disclaimer this is you know protected confidential information and so on um, so and there, so there, that's why there were actually a number of ethics opinions back around, say, late 90s, perhaps, uh, about whether lawyers could even ethically use email, you know, and everybody does now. 
But there were uh, serious questions, and some states said, no, you cannot use email because it, it cannot be completely secured, right? Um, mo many states, like, again, New York has an ethics opinion from that era, and it, like the one we talked about uh, last week, it says, yes, you can do that if you uh, pay attention to all of these rules, and they talked about 1.6 and various other ones that you know sort of gave uh, lawyers guidelines they need to follow and so in response to that this uh, the rule does not require absolute security it requires reasonable efforts right and that that also can mean things like um make sure if you're storing uh, information on, a, on some, some of a cloud server or something like that or a, a portal of some kind that that the service you're using protects security, has a strong security policy. Um, and again, it, it 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 so it's not it's it's understood that lawyers are not experts in data security, but they need to know enough to protect their clients. So so what constitutes a reasonable effort? would be up for discussion at some point. Maybe that maybe that'll be on the exam. I don't know. Um, but lawyers do make that that uh, oh, this has come up actually, um, in several instances, now that lawyers are working at home, like all of you guys. So um, a lawyer comes home, leaves files out on the kitchen counter. And I don't know, the uh, his wife comes in, the kids come in, the uh, gardener comes in, whatever. Um, that is not taking making reasonable efforts. That one, that one's pretty clear. Keep your files secured. Uh, be careful about people wandering through the room if you're in a Zoom conference with with a client or something like that. So these, so this is sort of a moving target as the as the technology changes, as the ways that information can be disclosed inadvertently change. Lawyers have to keep up with that. How are we doing? Okay. Um, factors to be considered in determining the reasonableness include these things. Um, so it sort of depends on what the stakes are in the in the representation that you're doing. Uh, the sensitivity of the information, likelihood of disclosure, cost of employing additional safeguards, and so on. Lawyers who represented, say, or maybe still represent, um, prisoners in Guantanamo cannot use any kind of electronic communication, right? They have to go down there um, because if... Um, well, if you've ever, well, sometimes I teach a course on information privacy, and there's basically no privacy at uh, crossing a border. So uh, lawyers could have their laptops searched, their phone searched, and so on. So there's a lot of problems with that as well. So anyway, that reasonable efforts. I think that's good. Um, any questions about that? about this duty to protect information. Nope.
All right. I want to then I want to get to this problem. And as I said, we're going to talk about the other exceptions um, on Wednesday, but this one, the first exception, uh, B1, 1.6B1, arguably is relevant to this problem, to the buried bodies case. Okay, and I'll let you decide whether you think it's relevant or not. This was a, this again was a true story. This is actual uh, history. Uh, and this took place in the Adirondacks. I'm not sure exactly where, so it's not too far from here. It's up here in uh, upstate New York. And um, there's a movie about this this case, a TV movie from 1988, which is kind of uh, it's a, it's kind of a cheesy movie, uh, very low budget, as TV movies were back then. But it's kind of interesting because uh, the defendant in that case, Garrow, is played by a very young Liam Neeson. Uh, so if, you, if you're a Liam Neeson fan, it might be wa worth watching. Okay, so to prevent reasonably certain death or substantial bodily harm. So a lawyer may reveal information relating to the representation. And again, notice this first clause, to the extent the lawyer reasonably believes necessary. So none of these, exce these exceptions that we'll talk about um, sort of uh, permit you know, wholesale disclosure of, of client information. It, uh, whenever an exception is in, is in play, the lawyer has to be careful to disclose no more than, reason, than necessary to, um, to achieve the desired result. Like here, to prevent reasonably certain death. Well, no more, you needn't, you may disclose anything up to that that's necessary to prevent that. And also notice that each of these exceptions um, are, they're not mandatory, they're permissive, they're discretionary. So they say a lawyer may reveal this information, but is not required to, even to prevent reasonably certain death, right? Um, a lawyer is entitled to, to um, sort of, weigh the interests of their client against other interests, right? Um, so, and again, a lawyer may be, may face various kinds of problems uh, if they don't disclose information that could lead to such a uh, just reasonably certain death, but they're not in ethical trouble if they, if they don't disclose. The rule simply says that they're permitted to if the situation meets the the uh, the exception, so thinking about uh, the exceptions in one point six a, you know, implied, uh, you know, uh, informed consent, implied authorization, uh, and so on, uh, and then this one, I'm going to break. So there are three scenes to this problem, and I'm going to give you sort of walk through it uh, for you or have you walk through it. So I'm going to start with problem 4-1 on page 258. And I'm going to give you seven minutes on this one because it's a it's a long fact situation. So uh, again, if any questions come up, you can you can you should be able to chat with me during your breakout rooms. Gabriela Alfano. Alfano. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, uh, 
Okay, which group were you in? Um, I'm with Heather and Jack Oster. I think group fourteen. Okay. okay. So what do you th what do you think you would do in this these lawyer situation here? Um, well, I would hope I was never the lawyer for this case, but I guess my group was really talking about um, B one, and you only have to disclose this information if there is to prevent death and prevent bodily harm. And in this situation, it seems like the victims are already dead. So there's no way to mm -hmm. prevent death. Um, so we were thinking that you wouldn't necessarily have to disclose the information. Um, and then I think the one that- Okay, let me, let me add a correction here is, you never have to. Remember, all these exceptions here are permissive. They would permit you to disclose but it would not require you to, to do so. Yeah, so okay. we said, no, we wouldn't disclose the information because we have a duty to our client to keep this confidential. Also, um, my teammate Heather brought up that she wasn't really sure if the attorney was able to hypnotize him and get information out of him that way. And like, even that at this point, you don't know if his story is actually true so we even suggested mm -hmm. maybe working with a prosecutor and saying, you know, we're willing to make a plea deal and, and give you some information if you know, we could get the death sentence off the table or do anything yeah. to kind of like um, work with the, our client and kind of give peace about the situation and like the victims and to their families. Um, but yeah, yeah that, that thing about hypnosis is just a, a weird little quirk in the story. And uh, the author is in the in the teacher's manual. Note. That was the 70s. You know, what, what are you going to do? Um, and in the movie that I mentioned, they leave that part out. They don't have him hypnotizing Liam Neeson. Gianna? I was going to say the only problem with, um, you know, trying to make that deal with the prosecutor was in real life. In this case, they tried to do just that. And the prosecutor was like, no, I will not make a deal with you. And in fact, if you don't tell me, if you have any information about where these bodies are, and you don't tell us, we will, you know, bring you up on charges of obstruction of justice. So um like in this situation i don't know if like typically you want to negotiate with the prosecutor but when it's you know concealing information about mm -hmm. dead bodies i don't think they're going to be very receptive unfortunately mm -hmm. so you're familiar with this case no it was in the textbook oh um, i mean they, about the what the they made the uh, offer to the prosecutor yeah in oh, the yeah, real right. in the it's real there. Life. it's all there yeah that's what they yeah. did and they um they didn't actually mm -hmm. bring it up on charges of obstruction, but they got, I think they got fined by the state because there was like a duty to report a dead body and they were not reporting mm -hmm. it. So they got like fined. It wasn't that bad, but mm -hmm. yeah, the deal didn't work out. Yeah. Okay. Do you agree with uh, Gabriella's team that uh, 1.6B1 1. would not apply? The prevent reasonably certain death exception would not apply here? I'm not sure because like, so if the person was alive, then yeah, like say they were, you know, stabbed and just bleeding out, then definitely that would apply because like she said, we don't know if it's true. So mm -hmm. in that case, but um, it seems like if they are dead, then the death was, you know, probably certain, certain to, you know, reasonably certain that they're already dead. So I don't know. Well, if it's, well, yeah, I mean, how would you, how would you apply that? I mean, if, if you, at this point... They don't know, you know, with if if one of them might still be alive, right? Um, 
I, I think based on the, how like kind of unhinged the storytelling was and they're mm-hmm. asking, they're like, you, you know, he's like, I stabbed her all these times. And they're like, you mean you killed her? And he's like, she was dead. And it's like, I, I feel like in, uh, if I was in the lawyer's position, I might not trust that they actually are dead. And also maybe depending on how long these people have been missing or have they been missing since last week, there's a high probability mm-hmm. they're, you know, still around. Yeah. If this was like years ago, like they're probably dead. Mm-hmm. Um, would that so if if you're thinking that there's a chance that they might be alive, and I think it, it would have been several days in this in this in this case. Does that make how does that does that make it reasonably certain death, or to prevent reasonably certain death? If there's a chance that they're alive, I'll open that up to anybody. I saw a couple of hands were up earlier. In that case, I will call on somebody. Um, Jocelyn? Jocelyn? Yeah, there. I see you there. Hi. I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question? Just. Um, well, first of all, what did your group think on this on this question? Um, we also kind of went with option two to do a site investigation. We said that um you know if we did find bodies um well i guess we were kind of thinking with 1.6 b1 that also too mm-hmm. i don't know if it's kind of a stretch but maybe substantial bodily harm could go to the victim's families who are kind of in distress or may hurt themselves um in connection with this case i know that's a bit of a reach but that was just a thought that's an interesting argument. Um, I think um, I think the, the the greatest weakness there is would would such harm to the family be reasonably certain? You know, and, and it's it, I think it probably isn't. Um, did anybody think that they would they would disclose this the location of the bodies? Yeah, we we did. We were okay. we were talking about it and like this, this guy was a whack job and like I mean if you get told that there's like you have bodies around there and like there is a potential I mean with his 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 stories were a little bit crazy if you read the the them mm-hmm. verbatim so I mean it is possible one of them could have been alive and then I mean you would be preventing you know imminent harm if they're tied up and don't have any water food etc so I don't know for us it was I would definitely report it for sure. Okay, do you, would you, in reporting it, do you think you would be complying with the rule or would you be violating the rule? Well, I think from what I just explained, I think that you could make an argument you would be complying under B1 because if you think there's a potential that they're still alive um, and if he's the only one that knows where they are and they're in some, you know, shaft or somewhere where you can't get to, they have no water, food, et cetera, um, they could die of, you know, starvation, dehydration, maybe they have an injury that needs to get attended to. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you could argue another way for sure. It's no guarantee. I and mean, the guy's a psycho. Um, but overall, I think that, I mean, just the gravity of the situation. And with somebody like this, I think it's, you know, if somebody could be alive, I think it's a duty to. And I don't think it would be a violation personally. But maybe I'm just superimposing my own morality well, onto well, it. Take a look at the rule again. Um, to prevent reasonably certain death or substantial bodily harm. How do you square that with the decision that you're making? 
Um, well, again, because I think if it would turn out that somebody, one of his victims or is still alive and he's the only one that knows it, I think there's a good chance that they would die if they're not found within, you know, maybe that day, possibly it could be the last day for him. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at it, that the guy's insane, it's possible that he may have killed one of them, one of them still alive. I would think that you would need to find that person rather quickly or else they would die. So if you think there's a possibility, then I think if you think there's a possibility that they're alive, then I think you would have to act pretty darn quickly or else it would be reasonably certain that they would die. Um, it could be, even, like I said, just from dehydration and lack of food. He's got them tied up or something somewhere. Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily have to be that they're injured even per se. So I think that it would be reasonably certain that if somebody was still alive, one of his victims, that they would mm -hmm. be dead without being found pretty quickly. Okay. Can anybody, uh, somebody who thinks that, uh, the rule does not permit disclosure. This rule does not permit disclosure. Does anyone want to talk about that? Make that argument? Uh, I'm not seeing your hands on my screen, but let's, let's see. Austin? Well, I'm sorry. I put my hand down because I think it does. Um, mm -hmm. You would be able to disclose. Okay. Um, how Can you make that argument? Why? Yeah. Why? Um, our argument kind of focused on he's trying to go to jail, go to like a mental institution by way of like uh, insanity or lower mm -hmm. security prisons. There's a pretty good chance he could hurt another prisoner that's there because there wouldn't be more security. We also talked about that it's just one murder. There's also a pretty good chance he might be able to get out of prison in a long time, but like when he's, you know, still relatively young and then he could harm people once he gets out. But then if you have these multiple murders, you know, he's probably going to die in jail. Okay. Um, again, but you're bringing, Austin, you're bringing in all these sort of extraneous factors that aren't in this particular rule, right? And again, just look at the rule. Um, lawyer may reveal information to prevent reasonably certain death or substantial bodily harm. I mean, if they're already dead, you can't do anything to prevent it. Right. Right. Um, let's see, Lizzie, your hand is up. I think you can, I see a good lawyer can stretch pretty much any rule to apply. Um, but in this case, I don't think it on his face applies because given the information you're given, he was obviously being pretty candid with you. And it seems like he's not, if he was still alive, he almost bragged. He seems like he doesn't seem like he sees any problem with them being kept alive, like the girl in the tent. He doesn't seem to see that's problem. So it seems like if he would, if this was what was happening, he would tell you. And um, with what Gianna was saying, like it, I wasn't super clear from the fact pattern of how recent this was. Um, but if it was multiple years ago, it doesn't seem like he keeps people around for very long. Um, hmm. And with that, it doesn't. Well, this was this. Like, this was a matter of days. Oh, after the people went missing. Yeah. Oh, okay. So still, I, I, I stand by what I said before that it seems like he is pretty candid about what he's doing. So it doesn't. It seem. I think it was reasonable to believe that these people are not alive, and the rule says reasonably certain death, or substantial physical harm mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem reasonably certain to me that these people are not dead already okay right um 
so you you think that he you say that he's being candid you you do believe Garrow's story then yes okay um but do you think he, i mean do you think you really think he was candid i mean look at his i mean he has a hard time saying that that they're that he stabbed anybody right he says um i got scared and hit her with my knife an odd way of saying it right and so the the lawyers say you mean you stabbed her and he says again I, yeah i hit her with my knife right which is a very weird say way of saying it right so it seemed as though and i don't know what to make of that is is he somehow delusional or something in that that he doesn't that he saw this happening as like like an out-of-body experience or something he wasn't that wasn't him doing the stabbing or that he was just having a hard time admitting it or what i mean there's something there's obviously something odd going on there um but even so i mean that is that is that relevant to this question as to this rule um To prevent reasonably certain death. I mean, if if there is, I mean, if there's a chance that they're alive, I think anybody, I suppose everybody in this room would like them to be found, right, and rescued. If there's a chance that any of them are alive, but does the rule permit that? And I don't think it does. Um, not only because, uh, well, again, if they're both dead, there's no preventing. The substantial the, the death it's already happened um and then at that point then it's sort of it's a past crime uh and lawyers cannot disclose uh in uh, in most circumstances a the any information about a client's past crime right um and then so there's no there's no aspect of prevention and also reasonably certain if there's a chance that one of them might be alive that doesn't sound like reasonable certainty of anything right and if you if you say there is a reason you know reasonably certain that they're dead then um again it's, it's, you're not going you're not preventing that does anybody anybody have anything more to say on that question would you so what the 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 book gives you two three options one alert the police two do nothing just defend your client, or th or um, three. Oh no, two. Do a site investigation. Go look and see if you can find the bodies, and then three. Do nothing. Um, who would go and and do the site investigation? Who would go look? Uh, Tyler, I see your hand up. Uh, Ashley, Deborah. Uh, who wants to Who wants to talk about that and why you would do that? I guess I'll go. Okay. Um, so if I do the site investigation and I find a body, I could then make the argument that the exception applies um, to preventing him from killing future people. Um, if you have a past, uh, I don't know, four or five dead people from the same person, he told you where the bodies are, you would then have a reasonable uh, expectation that he might kill again in the future and that could give you the reason that you need to um then go to the police with this information 
Okay. Um, the fact that he's killed, if he had killed five people, makes it reasonably certain that he will kill more. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Do people agree with that? Anybody want to want to second that or say something? Yeah, I'll I'll actually I do agree with that point because that is something I was thinking about. I would still go with option one as I just for the for the you know what I elaborated on earlier. But as a second option, I I do agree with that. Um, I think I don't know if it's in the next uh, body thing that we read, but I think they mentioned that the lawyer's daughter was basically being stalked by the guy. Um, so that would I be mean, the, the third scene. Yeah, yeah. So, so, and yeah. that, so going to building off of what he said, I, I think that, you know, that, that right there is talking about, mm -hmm. well, like he almost did something to her. Yeah. So having alerted somebody there, but very well could prevent reasonable uh, certainty of harm. Nothing happened to her, obviously, but mm -hmm. again, it's talking about objective and definitely a possibility he could have done something. So I think that definitely is a plausible thing. I would still go with option one, though, personally. Yeah. Well, again, you know, the, the, the tricky thing with these problems that have multiple scenes is yet you, yeah, hindsight is different. Like from the perspective of the third scene, yes, he did try and kill people. Um, but you have to, as working through these problems, we have to look at, at the situation here, scene one. What do you know at that point? Um, has anybody, <coughs> I'm sorry. Does anybody want to argue that at that point, it was not reasonably certain that he would kill somebody else. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think he's in trouble at this point. He's going to be convicted. I, uh, it, you know, very likely. I, I would feel very uncomfortable coming up with the reasons to, to, to have my, my own client you know, more like find more evidence <laughs> to, to, to convict him. I mean, if I was going to go look for these bodies, it would be so that I felt like I could negotiate with the prosecutor in good faith about getting him into a mental hospital for life, possibly. But, but other than that, I mean, as a defense lawyer, how do you really make, you know, an argument that theoretically somebody else might might be killed i mean that just seems that just seems to be the the opposite of what this rule is all about i mean you're you're really sort of obligated to to i mean yeah rule, the rule puts a the rule puts a pretty big burden on um sort of counter going against the presumption of confidentiality right so we we presume that the clients are entitled to confidentiality. It allows you to not does not require. It allows you to re to reveal, to the extent you reasonably uh, necessary to prevent reasonably certain death or substantial bodily harm. So, the the rule sort of allows for or sort of assumes that in most instances you're not going to disclose anything like this, right? Or you shouldn't disclose anything like this, Constantine. Uh, yeah. I, so I have a few things I'll say. I guess the first thing is setting aside our own morals. Our group just felt that, as horrible as this is, the, the Fifth Amendment's a pretty big deal, and you know you should maybe verify if what this what this client is saying is true. I know that that's what actually happened. Um, 
but you shouldn't just be like, oh, well, he's probably lying or he's probably going to kill someone else because you're starting to just assume things about his character. And every every client deserves to just be treated equally under the law first. But uh, we had a we then thought and I, I hope this isn't too tangential. We're wondering if you could use rule one point one six B to approach the judge and say, hey, we're having a communication problem. We want out. You know, I don't want to represent this client. Oh, so you would, so you would, um, rather than disclose, you would withdraw? Uh, if, if possible. If not, then, then yeah, you gotta, you have to do your due diligence and, you know, not say a word and, and go forward. But, yeah, if we could withdraw, I think, I think we all said we wanted to. Okay. Does anybody else like the idea of withdrawing but still not saying anything? Assuming the court would let you withdraw. Which they wouldn't in this instance. He's been appointed. He's appointed counsel. The judge, and in, in both in the real case and, and in a case, you know, no, the judge is not going to allow withdrawal for uh, appointed counsel. And and if they did, I mean, what are you going to say if if the uh, if you ask to withdraw, that you need the court the tribunal's permission, and suppose they they want to know why you you want to withdraw, and to to withdraw, you would to answer that question, you would need to breach confidentiality, you would need to say because well because I know my client killed these other kids. Uh, Jen, what do you think? So, I think regarding the, well, if he killed once, he'll kill again, you can't use that kind of propensity evidence, um, or we've talked about that. And the other thing, like, if you do a site search, you're now opening yourself up to the fact that, well, you now know for certain that there's a body, you're now breaking the law by not disclosing that. So you've put yourself in a conflict. And you're the defense attorney. It would go against every fiber of representing the best interests of your client to to go out and, and disclose any of this. And as much as I find it morally, like from a moral standpoint, reprehensible to be like, well, they're already dead. Um, the fact that you that you don't have this certainty of harm, you don't have the chance that there could be harm potentially, you need to look at the best interests of your client. Um, and that leads to non-disclosure of, of this information as, like I said, as much as morally, I think I would act differently if there wasn't an ethical obligation. <clears throat> I think there has to be that, that divide because you're, mm -hmm. you're looking for best interest of your client and looking and saying, well, the propensity to kill is, is absolutely something I have to address. If your client is the one on trial for murder, you you don't get to think like that. I don't think. Mm -hmm. Franco, what do you think? I have a question, actually. Um, sure. If the lawyer decides to disclose it under one point six B one to prevent reasonable certain death or really harm, mm -hmm. does the rule require that the lawyer would actually make sure that the story is true because it says a reasonable belief? So the lawyer will be required to make sure that someone is uh, under certain death. Like in this situation, would the lawyer be required to do the on-site investigation before disclosing? Well, okay, this is another one of these things. That I think if you break it down, you've got um, 
a partly objective test and a partly subjective test. So reasonably certain, I would, that sounds like an objective test. Would a reasonable lawyer in your position uh, believe it's reason that, that the death would be reasonably certain, right? That there's a, and I don't know what, what sort of uh, burden of proof that is. Reasonably certain is is that um, beyond a reasonable doubt, less than a reasonable doubt. I don't know, um, but there's that. The so first is the death. It's it's just the death reasonably certain, and then does the lawyer reasonably believe it's necessary to disclose in order to prevent it? Right. Um, so that's the first. The first test is is the death reasonably certain, and then the second is does the lawyer believe that disclosing something would help would prevent it and is that a reasonable belief right and so i mean you need, you need to sort of decide that um anybody else uh have anything to say on, on this uh, sort of this part of the problem <clears throat> who would not do the site investigation just sort of ignore it, <clears throat> ignore what the client told you, Stephen. Plausible deniability would be uh, uh, why I would possibly not want to go poking around. Was a thought that I had, Stephen. I'm not. Oh, could you not hear me? Are other people hearing, Stephen? Oh, why aren't I hearing you? Yeah. I can hear. Hang on. I should be hearing you. Take my earbuds out and try again. Well, does somebody else just want to tell them what I said? And uh, no, we're gonna make me say it. Okay. I'm sorry, Stephen. Professor, can you hear me? I'm still not hearing you. No. Shoot. Professor, can you hear me? I'm sorry. Can someone else try to try to speak? Why don't you just type into the chat? Oh, here we go. Try it again. Try it again, Stephen. Testing, testing, one, ah. two. There. It, I heard, okay. I heard that. Okay. Yeah. So what I said. Well, so what I said. Plausible deniability. You might not want to look into it too closely because if you become aware of the information, and it didn't strike me that the further knowledge of where the bodies actually were was going to be that important to the defense. And yeah, there's an echo now, and I have no. Okay. So how um, how would it be useful to the defense knowing whether they're? I'm mean, what was what was their thinking? They were thinking that, you know, if they knew, if they knew that he had killed these other kids, um, that they, they could make a stronger case for a plea of insanity, right? De uh, defense of insanity. Lizzie? Hey, knowing hey, that, they're knowing that they're for sure dead, for sure dead would make it would easier, make easier, to easier to not disclose the not information. But going to the, going site, to the site, of site of a possible murder and getting your DNA all up in there seems like a really bad idea. Yeah. I don't know that 
how much DNA investigation they could do in the mid 70s. But yeah, that's possible. I'm trying my headphones again. Here we go. All right. Um, Brian. I was going to say, I, I feel like I've read stories about, like in Louisiana, death penalty um, defender and death penalty defense cases, um, prosecutors have charged defense attorneys simply for interviewing um, people around the defendant, uh, giving them obstruction of justice charges, um, which is a little bit like what we're talking about here, like getting involved um, you know, they would certainly, in that case, like yeah. give them a charge if they went to the scene of the crime. Um, I don't know how. Uh, I I don't know that that's really a a legitimate practice, but it's. Um, you know, I I I think it's kind of a, a hazy line there. I, I do think that if you have doubts about some of the things your client's saying, um, if you're really going to negotiate in good faith uh, with the prosecutor, um, you're going to have to figure out some way of determining if, if any of it is true. So I, I don't know, I don't know, if you can say, you just do nothing. Okay, I mean, yeah, uh... you know, I suppose that's safer. Okay, Mitchell? Yeah, I mean, one thought I had, and I, you know, maybe this is kind of circling back around, but like, I feel like, you know, it, let's say you do go out and investigate that site and you don't find what, you know, what he said was going to be there. I wonder if at a certain point you have to just say like for, you know, the interests, the overall kind of interest of justice and just like kind of putting human life above, you know, you know, above your kind of duty of confidentiality with this client. Like, I wonder if you would, if you would have to possibly say something to the authorities, like if you didn't find those bodies, if there is, if you think there's, you know, a chance that, that one of them may be still alive or something. Um, I just wonder if, you know, sort of where that line between, you know, sort of in the, in the, um, in the abstract, sort of this overall interest of justice sort of thing of being a lawyer versus your duty to this one client. Like, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but I just, I wonder if, if you're in that, that sort of gray area, if you have to say, well, if there's a chance that this person's still alive, you know, maybe, maybe risk the sanctions. I don't know. Like it's mm -hmm. a difficult question. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that one of the lessons here is nobody would want to be in this position. The, the right. lawyers didn't want to be there. They, they were appointed. Um, Deborah. Um, for me, my thinking was um, the attorney said he was going to offer that information in um, exchange for getting a certain plea for the client. So I guess for me, it's just like that was the perfect way to ensure that the attorney client privilege was still secure and that he was still going to let them know that information. And I feel like as a lawyer, it's in your best it. it your job is to get the best result for your client. He was just leveraging information that he knew. So was he really wrong though for offering that information for a better deal for his client? Well, um, are you then, so I'm going back to rule 1.6. Um, 
are you are you saying do you think that um do i have this do you have the rule on the screen again um are you saying that it might be impliedly authorized for the lawyers to go and discuss you know a plea deal with the with the prosecutor armed with this information um I'm not saying it's authorized. I actually think it's governed by um, A, which like mm -hmm. basically saying the privilege um, overrules all of the exception. But I'm also saying that in just a morality kind of way, like it's not like the client um, the attorney was going to keep the information to himself. He was going to disclose it at some point. It was just a matter of like when and how. Mm-hmm. So I don't see him doing anything wrong for not saying it before getting the right, the desired result for his client. So even though the, so basically you're saying that the, you're, you're sort of acknowledging the exception does not apply, but you're going to do it anyway. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I'm saying the exception doesn't, no yeah. exception applies, but ultimately like mm -hmm. if we're trying to see from a moral lens, he was still going to mm -hmm. do something that was morally right. It's not, I don't think he did anything mm -hmm. bad. Okay. Kaylee? Um, yeah, I kind of just had a question. Our group was talking about um, the point where they said that you could possibly send in like an anonymous tip. And I know that this wouldn't be in the best interest of the client, but you would be technically adhering to the state law about the disposal of the dead bodies and arguably confidentiality because you're not disclosing who killed the bodies or who you're representing. Um, and in the model rules, they also talk about how you shouldn't aid your client in any sort of criminal activity and he's breaking a state law. Um, but I know that that probably wouldn't outweigh your duties, but mm -hmm. we were just interested about that point. Like okay, well, yeah, I'm not sure that that, that, that law is really justifies um, sort of the, the idea that you're you're assisting your client in breaking the law. I mean, it's a public health law. It's like you shouldn't have dead bodies lying around like on, on uh, Law and Order on TV. You know, you should, people are just stumbling on dead bodies all the time. We don't want that. And it's it's that's a public health matter. And um, so it was a stretch for the court uh, to to charge that that violation in this instance. Uh, Kimberly? I think one of the biggest problems that I'm having with this is that um, we're all struggling to remove our own morality from this. And I think we're forgetting that we all have a fiduciary duty to our client to act in their best interest and not with our own moral code. So our, our first and foremost duty is to our client and to representing them fairly and not to open them to any more liability than he's already opened himself up to. So mm -hmm. I would have gone with option three and just not done anything. Mm -hmm. Anybody here um, thinking you want to do criminal defense who hasn't spoken up yet? Or is this convinced everybody they don't want to do criminal defense? Um, so I don't, and we're not going to have time to do this scene too. The movie I would, I told you about, uh, it's called, it's called Sworn to Silence. 
and um, it doesn't stream anywhere. I bought it, had to buy a DVD of it. Um, it's based on this this story. Um, there is one scene that's really well done, and it's basically this scene, buried body scene two, where one of the parents comes to talk to the lawyer, and is barely containing himself, you know, tears and so on about, you know, can you just tell me something? I just need just so so we can know if we can we can have a funeral or, or anything like that. And then the lawyer has to uh, just just refrain from from disclosing anything and it's, it's very hard i mean it's, it's clearly hard on both the father and the the lawyer worse on the father i think um but it's a it's a very good it's a very well done scene unfortunately they i think it's, uh, it's because it's copy protected i can't share it on zoom with you um trying to think think what else what else I, I want to sort of fit in, in these last few minutes well okay so the lawyers uh, had all kinds of trouble after this right um, uh, mr. Belge died a few years later uh, he, he was alcoholic I think he was alcoholic at the time and he died a few years later um, mr. Armony I, I might still be alive um, or if not he died recently but um, I mean, they both received death threats. They lost all of their business for years, um, and so it was. It was. It was harsh, right? Um, there is. Let's see. Oh, I, let me let, just share one more screen with you. Um, there is, if you're interested in this story, there is a uh, episode, a podcast episode from. A couple of years ago, maybe 2017, um, on Radio Lab. It's about an hour-long podcast interviewing uh, Armony uh, and uh, the author, one of the authors of the casebook, uh, Lisa Lerman, I think, uh, about this this story. And it's worth listening to. Um, any other thoughts before? before we can close up anybody no frank yeah some something interesting about this case i remember i think it was last semester i heard um susan spett's uh mother she got interviewed mm -hmm. um about this case and she was actually criticizing uh our ethics and legal rules and she basically was saying like she cannot believe why law schools uh keep like teaching this kind of stuff like protecting this kind of information and and like it's interesting just to see another point of view like from another person that that is not even a lawyer but she was saying like that's unfair and that like is something that she cannot believe uh, that lawyers might know and and she considers like what Armani did was totally wrong and morally wrong so it was interesting just to see her interview it was she explains all, all her all her um thoughts mm -hmm. about about what she considers to be fair I know nobody will ever agree 
with her, maybe, or maybe there are some lawyers who agree. In my view, I think that's also unfair, but that, that's how it is. But yeah, mm -hmm. that's something yeah. I wanted to um, I think, I mean, Armony is, at least among the criminal defense bar, a hero. You know, many, many lawyers, you know, for for standing up for his client, for going through all the stuff that he did. And I certainly, I see that. Uh, um, but obviously for many other people, he's not. Uh, Jacob, what do you have to say? Uh, I was just wondering, we talked about this in my group. If uh, it's not 1.6 B or anything, but if by not reporting the potential for a body, if that could be interfering with evidence in an investigation or interfering with an investigation, if that would be an ethical violation with if even if they're dead, you know, the bodies might decompose and might prevent the administration of justice. Well, um, we'll talk about sort of similar issues in uh, in uh, later on in the course when we talk about uh, when you receive physical evidence, you know, your client, the client off comes into your office and asks you to hide a gun for him or things like that. Uh, so there are issues around that. Uh, I don't think, well, I mean, prosecutors could charge you for whatever they want. I don't think it would be um, interfering with, with evidence to not go and look at it and not touch anything. That's just not doing anything that would not be interfering. It might be, and they might claim obstruction of justice, but again, you didn't do anything to obstruct it, right? The police can still do their police work and find the bodies. You haven't done anything to, to obscure them, make them harder to find. Um, so I don't think either of those would apply. Although some people, somebody might try and assert those claims. Anybody else? No. Well, I'm going to get you guys go a whole 30 seconds early. Um, so this was a good discussion. I really appreciate it. Uh, I never get, I never really get past that first scene. You know, people get wrapped up in that one, but I think there's plenty to talk about there. So, okay, um, everybody have a good evening, and I will see you on Wednesday.